0: Best sermon bumper ever. Can we give it up for our creative team here? That's incredible. Guys, so thankful to have you here. Hey, let me start like this. When I was in elementary school, I began my rebellion of authority by taking one of the school calculators that was given to me and putting in the the number 7734, which when turned upside down spells the word, right, you guys were heathens like me. That's good. That's good. Yeah. (laughs) Spell the word hell. Guys, today we continue in our Stranger Things series, and yes, we're going to be talking about the subject of hell. How's that for a warm welcome to our first-time guests today? Seriously, if it is your first time here, we're so incredibly grateful that you joined us. I don't know how that invitation came in your direction, but thanks for accepting it and coming and joining us uh, in a really important topic today. It truly is. Uh, But before we get there, let me just say welcome to all of you in this room. I do want to say a special welcome for those of you that have joined us for the first time. I also want to say uh, welcome to those of you watching online today as far as Egypt and Guatemala now, which is crazy, and even other states around this nation, specifically those of you watching in the Colorado Springs area. Can we just take a moment and welcome them into this conversation really quick? Well, I want to give you a heads up today because the tone of my sermon will probably take a non-traditional tone. Here's what I mean by that. Typically, uh, I wouldn't teach a very academic type of sermon, a very cerebral type sermon. But today, in order for us to unveil a very important topic, that's the approach that I would like to take. And here's what I think a few of you may need to know first. Some of you may need to unlearn some things when it comes to the subject of hell. Some of you may be completely new to the church. Maybe you're learning all of this for the first time. And others, and this is where I'd probably give you a warning, some of you potentially have landed in here today and you've come to your own conclusions on subjects like hell. Now, here's where I would tell you to be careful, because we call this postmodernism modernism this, this way of thinking where is I don't really need a higher authority. I don't really need God to show me or point me towards truth. I can come to that conclusion by myself. Friends, can I warn you, if that's possibly you this morning, don't ever put yourself in a position that's greater than God. And so today, what we're going to do is we're going to lean into God's Word to learn about a very important subject. And to do that, I'm going to need you to lean into this. I'm going to need you to lean into this conversation. If you're a note taker, this is going to be a sermon that you're going to want to take a lot of notes on. And so, uh, guys, one of the things, one of the, the notions within Christianity that I've disliked in the past, and I really should say about the church in the past, is this notion that to believe in certain aspects of the Christian faith, you've got to check your brain at the door. And what I mean by that is, some people in my position just say, no, 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 don't ask questions, just do as you're told. Just believe what we tell you. And that's not the kind of church that we're ever going to be here. I need you to know that. We want you to ask questions. We want you to chase down your doubts because we believe there are real, true answers out there. Now, by no means am I going to be able to give you an exhaustive sermon on hell today. And so at the end of our time together, if any of you want to go deeper, if any of you would like to sit down and ask more questions, I assure you, I mean this when I say this, we will make ourselves available for you. All you need to do is come and let us know who you are, and we'll schedule some time to have a deeper conversation. So, As we lean into this conversation today, I want us to look at four particular questions. Those questions are going to come up on the screen. We're going to do our best, I'm going to do my best to answer these four questions for you today, and we're also going to look at four specific words. And the reason we're going to look at four specific words will make more sense as we get into our subject of hell. So let's start here. What is hell? For some, it's a place. For others, it's a myth. For some, it's being in a room full of Green Bay Packer fans. See you back there. Yeah, we just, we just lost some people at our church. Uh, <laughs> but what is hell? In short, hell is the separation from God. Hell is the separation from all things good. Now, interesting enough, in the Old Covenant, again, if you're new to the church, in our English Bibles, we had this Old Covenant and a New Covenant, but in the Old Covenant, it says little to almost nothing about the subject of hell. But when we get into our new covenant, the covenant that was meant for us, we see 12 specific references to this idea of hell. And 11 of those references are mentioned by Jesus himself. And that causes me to pause for a second and show you and tell you what our one thing is going to be today. Friends, if you struggle with the reality of hell, you're going to struggle with the reality of Jesus. Because it's Jesus who actually has the most to say on the subject Of hell, so here's what we're going to do. I want us to look at uh, four specific words in the Bible. And contrary to popular belief, before I get there, contrary to popular belief, the Bible actually has little to say on the subject of hell. But when it does speak about the subject of hell, it's very specific. And so we're going to look at some of those things today. But the reason why I want to do a word study today is because. If you grew up in what I would call the King James era, maybe you grew up uh, reading a King James Bible, and, or maybe you went to a church that preached from a King James Bible, there are four words that were translated into the word hell. But three of those words never should have been translated into the word hell. And so I've said this before and I'll say it again. I don't think the King James Bible is the best version for you to read. Now, you make, cho- you make a choice, you can read whatever version you want. I probably just made somebody mad, and I get that. But the reason why the King James Version is not the best version of the Bible to read is because when it was written, we didn't have nearly the education that we do today on the, on the Hebrew language and the Greek language. The Old Covenant was written in Hebrew. The New Covenant was written in Greek. But we now have so, much of, we have so much of a deeper understanding of both of those languages, so your more current translations will actually do a much better job translating into our English language. So let's start here with our word study, and it's the, the word sheol. Now, Sheol was translated, again, in the King James Bible and some other versions, as hell. But in the Old Testament, it's better described as the grave, or death, or a pit. It wasn't a place where just wicked people were sent. It was a place that dead people were sent. Now, when we fast forward to the New Testament, or what we call the New Covenant within our Bible we see uh, a new language. We see this Greek language, and so the Greek counterpart to the word Sheol, which was a Hebrew word, is the word Hades. This word, too, would have been translated into the word hell, but more accurately, is described as the abyss, the underworld, the abode of the dead, and we see this word pop up ten times in our New Testament, but again, all of those would have been translated as hell in the King James Bible. Third word that I want us to look at is the Greek word Tartarus. Now this only appears once in our entire New Testament and we find it in 2 Peter chapter I'm sorry Peter chapter 2 verse 4 and Peter says this, God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but he sent them to Tartarus, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. Now most English versions would translate Tartarus as hell or the lowest place of hell, but the word Tartarus is more accurately defined as the, the deepest abyss of Hades. Now, why is that important? Why are, why are we taking the time to go through those words? Friends, if we were forced to use just these three words to describe what hell is, we would be at a loss. But unfortunately, it's exactly what the King James Bible did. It took all three of these words and translated them into the word hell. And so if you grew up, and again, what I would call the King James era, You likely heard a lot of sermons on hell, fire, and brimstone. Has anybody been there before? Anybody? Yeah, some of you have been there. Now that leads me to our fourth and final word. It's actually the only word in the Bible that actually, I should say accurately, describes this word hell. It's used 12 times in our New Testament, 11 times given by Jesus. And James, his brother, used it one time when he was talking about the power of the tongue. And so let me say one more time, if you struggle with the reality of hell, you will likely struggle with the reality of Jesus, because ultimately it's Jesus who has, has the most to say on the subject of hell. Ultimately, it's Jesus who teaches us about this subject, but every time that we see this word come up, well, every time when you read through the Gospels and you see him use the word hell, the actual Greek word that he's using is the word Gehenna, And this is really important, and this is going to be a big part of our subject today. And I'll get to that in just a moment. But for those of you that like taking notes, I wanted to give you every um, one of those 11 references that Jesus brings up the subject of hell. And so if you're prone to taking notes... I would encourage you to write down these references, and you can go back and read those for yourself later. And every time Jesus uses the word hell in each of these references, he's actually using the word Gehenna. Now, friends, listen to me. This is where historical context is absolutely critical in order for us to understand how Jesus' audience, which would have primarily been Jewish leaders— and the Jewish people, they would have been Pharisees, so he's speaking to a Jewish audience. Keep in mind, Jesus has not uh, died and been resurrected yet, therefore Christianity has not started. Christianity doesn't start, until so Jesus resurrects from the dead, and then this thing called the church starts, and everybody that decides to follow Jesus is called, a, is called a Christ follower, which is where we get the word Christian. None of that has started yet. And so what Jesus is trying to do is he understands who his audience is, and he's talking to these Jewish believers, and he's trying to remind them, of the implications of our life and how we live. And it's important, very important for you to understand who his audience is. Because when the Jewish leaders and the Jewish people would have heard Jesus' teaching on hell, when he's using this actual word Gehenna, they actually thought of this place right here, the Valley of Hinnom. This was a real, physical place. And when you break down the Greek word Gehenna, it literally means, "ga" means valley and "henna" means... <clears throat> excuse me, means Hinnom. Keep that up there for a second, Julie. The valley of Hinnom was an actual place. So what Jesus is doing, and this was a very common practice for rabbis during the time of Jesus's day, Jesus was taking a physical place, a place that these Jewish people would have known about, to explain a spiritual reality. He was using a physical place to explain a physical reality. So when the Jewish audience heard this word Valley of Hinnom or Gehenna, which means the Valley of Hinnom, they would have understood this place that they knew about that went way back in Jewish history. You see, 600 years before the time of Jesus, the Valley of Hinnom was used as a place where the pagan worshipers did all sorts of vile and wicked things, including burning children alive as sacrifices to the gods, false gods of Moloch and Baal. One section in this valley was called Tophet, also known as the fire stove, where the children were slaughtered. If you want to read about this, write down this reference, 2 Kings chapter 23. You can read about this valley of Hinnom. Friends, this was a place of tremendous evil. History teaches that later the Jews... Turned the valley of Hinnom into the city dump where garbage and anything deemed unclean, including the dead bodies of executed criminals, they would have been taken to this valley to be incinerated. And for that purpose, a fire was kept burning constantly in this valley of Hinnom. Maybe now you're starting to see some of the physical representations come together with the spiritual reality. And even though this was no longer used for evil worship, with all of the filth, And all of the thick smoke that remained there constantly, it became a very dark and dreary place, a place where there was no hope, no peace, no presence of God. And by the time that Jesus comes on scene, this constantly burning Valley of Hinnom was also known as the Valley of Gehenna, also referred to as hell. And it had taken on a popular image of the place down there where the wicked would eventually be cast into flames for destruction. Why do I tell you all of that? This is really important. There's been some false teaching <clears throat> in the church in the past decade, really it could go back several decades, that says because Jesus is talking about a physical place, because when you break down the Greek word, when we see the word hell in our English Bibles, the word is actually Gehenna, which means Valley of Hinnom, is an actual place, people have begun to teach that this was actually not a spiritual place. It was not a place of eternal punishment. Here's what you need to know. When Jesus is using this reference, the Valley of Hinnom, the word Gehenna, you can go back and read in Jewish history that they would have already been associating this particular place with a place that was representing eternal punishment. And so if you want to do any, I'm sure not many of you are ready to go back and read your Jewish history, but if you were, uh, you could go back and you could find that for yourself. Friends, ultimately what Jesus is saying could be summed up in this statement right here. Hell is a present-day reality. Jesus is using a physical place that people, that his audience specifically, could have been able to identify with. Hell is a present-day reality with future implications. Let me say it a little bit differently. Hell is a present-day reality with future eternal implications. And that leads me to our second and third question. Who is Jesus' audience? and Why is this so important? And how has the church gotten this wrong? Let me dive into these two questions pretty fast here. Friends, all 11 references to hell that Jesus spoke of, we can see one common theme. Throughout, through every 11, all 11 references, we see Jesus speaking to the Jewish believers of that day. Now, remember, again, Christianity hasn't started yet. And so they're try, he's trying to convince them, guys, how you're living today has implications. And it has implications for your life now, but it also has implications for your life in the future, potentially your eternal future. But here's something that I want to make sure, if you've tuned out at any point during what I've said up till now, I want you to tune in right here because this is critical. Listen to me. Never once, never once do we see Jesus use hell to threaten or scare people in the direction of God. Can I say it again? Never once do we see Jesus use hell or any type of fear to threaten people, sinful people, towards the direction of God. He could have. Right, He came across this guy named Zacchaeus. He came across this guy named Matthew. Both of them were tax collectors. They were completely deviant and deceptive in how they were treating the Jewish people and, and robbing them, really, of their money. Jesus could have looked at those guys and said, Guys, you're liars. You deserve a place like this. This place was created for people like you. But he doesn't. Then we look at maybe the adulterous woman, who was literally caught in the act of adultery, pulled out of the bed, brought out in front of the Jewish leaders, thrown on the dirt... And ready to be stoned to death. And Jesus steps in. He says, okay guys, any of you that are here and you're ready to put this young woman, really take her life. If you don't have any sin in your life, you step up to the plate. We'll let you go first. And with that simple statement, every one of them dropped their stones and walked away. And then Jesus looks at this young lady. And he doesn't say, you deserve punishment. You deserve to be condemned because of how awful you're living your life. Now he looks at her and he says, Who's here to condemn you? No one. They all walked away. They all dropped their stones. Neither will I. But now go and sin no more. Friends, when it came to leaning into broken people, when it came to Jesus encountering broken and sinful people, he didn't use threats He didn't use fear, He didn't use hell. He used His grace. I don't know about you, but I'm pretty thankful that God uses His grace when He's leading in our direction, when we start to drift and we're living outside of His plan and purposes for our life. Let's pause here for a second. I know many of you have likely been on the other end of some well-meaning Christians, and those well-meaning Christians have probably used things like hell before in your life to, to steer you in the direction of God. And the reason why I want to bring this up right now is because I think if that is your story, it's possible that you began your faith journey with an unhealthy connection to fear. Do you know how many times the Bible says, fear not? 365. One for every day of the year, including leap year. Friends, God just simply doesn't work this way. He'll never use fear to steer you in his direction. And so if that's possibly been your story, and you find yourself listening to me right now, I want to read to to you a passage that somebody should have read to you a long time ago. And it's a passage that comes out of Paul's letter to the Roman church in chapter 2, and here's how it goes. He says this, Don't you see how wonderfully kind and tolerant and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness, everybody say kindness, Can't you see that it's his kindness that is intended to turn you from your sin? Other translations say that will lead you towards repentance, which literally means to turn and go in a different direction. Friends, fear or hell simply was not a tactic that Jesus used when speaking to lost people. And so if you grew up in this hell, fire, and brimstone era, and you wonder maybe sometimes why we don't talk about hell more, we're simply taking our cues from Jesus. doesn't mean we're not going to talk about it. It's why we're talking about it this morning. But listen to me, how we talk about it, how often we talk about it, and who we talk about it to are incredibly important. And friends, it simply just did not come up very often, 11 times to be exact. And every time we see Jesus bringing up, he is warning the believers of that day. He's warning them about things like hatred and anger, even specifically against one another. He's warning them about their lust and sexual sin. He's warning them about how they're teaching people, and what what they're teaching people are not leading people towards God. It's leading people away from God. You know that most of the references to hell and damnation and condemnation are for people in my position, people who have a platform who get to teach you about Jesus, and so I take this subject incredibly seriously. Last week, Patrick talked to us about heaven and how we have the opportunity to usher heaven into our life now by how we treat and we love others now. Yes, heaven is an eternal destination that we'll get to someday, but we have the opportunity now. Jesus tells us that we can bring his kingdom to earth and how we live now and usher that into people's lives. But did you know that that's also true for the subject of hell? We can bring aspects of hell into this life now, by how we live, the things that we say, our own sexual sin and hatred seems to be growing more and more deviant in our culture. And so I'm going to ask you a really hard question. How are you potentially bringing aspects of hell into this world by how you are living? Do you know when I wrote that down, I didn't even want to say it. Like, that is a tough question. You know why it's so tough? Because I have. I have brought aspects of hell into this life, mostly and mainly from my past, that I'm not proud of, things that I'm embarrassed to tell you about. But I know that there are times in my life when I wasn't listening to the voice of God in my life and when I was kind of paving my own path and living out my own purpose. And in doing so, the things that came out of my mouth and the things that kind of came through the way that I lived my life were bringing aspects of hell into this life. A couple weeks ago, many of you know this, I got the opportunity to go down to uh, Guatemala with a team of people from Trace. And I heard many hard stories down there, but there was one particularly hard story that stuck with me. You see, when we were down there, we were staying at a guest house. And at this guest house, we had these young girls that were coming and helping cook the food and serve the food to us. And we found out that they obviously had a story. But this one young lady had a really heart-wrenching story. When she was younger, her sister and her mother died at the same time on the other end of some gang violence. And after that happened, this young girl was sent to live with her mother's boyfriend. Not too long after that, this man started to rape her at a very young age. At the age of 13, she became pregnant. Now, nobody had talked to her about any of this, and so she didn't even know she was pregnant. And prematurely, she ends up delivering this baby on the bathroom floor. And I'm not sure how they found out, but the local fire department found out about this situation, came in and rescued her and got her out of this horrific environment and got her into a much better place To live why do I share that with you friends sometimes when we hear and we witness and sometimes even experience the atrocities of this world ourselves and we see how dark darkness can get we start to see the need for God's wrath we might even start to appreciate places like hell but do you know who has the biggest problem with the subject of hell you know who has the biggest problem with the subject of God's wrath Americans right? Because we love our lattes. And what I mean by that is we love our comfort. Don't don't tell me I need to be disciplined. Don't tell me that I need to be punished. Like, man, I'm trying to live a life of comfort. I've gotten the chance to go around to many different co- countries around this world. And one of the things you just don't find in other countries like you find in America is this opposition against this idea that God can be wrathful and that that's a good thing. In other countries, they appreciate it because you've probably heard enough stories. You've lived in love you've lived enough life up till now to know of the atrocities that happen to people around this world. And so they appreciate the wrath of God, but not Americans, because we don't want to be punished for anything. Just ask school teachers and how they feel handcuffed and not even be able to discipline our kids today. Patrick shared an interesting, an interesting statistic last week, and he was talking about heaven and how 80% of Americans believe in heaven, but unfortunately only, only 40% of Americans believe in an eternal hell. Why? Because we like our comfort. Don't tell me there's punishment waiting. Don't tell me there's repercussions of my actions. And so we don't like this idea of hell. We don't like this idea of eternal punishment. We don't like this idea of God's wrath. And if you've never been taught this, I want to tell you something that's incredibly important for you to know about the nature of God. Here's what it is. Friends, God is holy and because he's holy, he's a perfect balance of love, which we like to talk about in church a lot, right? We love to talk about the love of God, and we should. It's throughout the gospel. But God is a, both, he's a balance. Because he's holy, he's a balance of both love and wrath. Now, why is that important? Here's why. This makes God the only being in the universe that is perfectly just. You see, when you're a perfect balance of love and wrath, then you're also perfectly just. And because God is perfectly just, he is the only one capable, listen to me, of impartial, unbiased judgment. But in a society like ours, who frowns on punishment, we don't know what to do with God's wrath. And so oftentimes, we find ourselves asking this question. It's a very popular American question. How can a loving God send people to hell? Maybe you've heard this question before. Maybe you've asked it. How could a loving God send people to hell? But here's what you need to know about this question. It actually sends us in the wrong direction. It's misleading in in the very nature of the way that it's asked because God really doesn't send anyone anywhere. Let me show you what I mean by that by reading to you a quote from C.S. Lewis. I think he defines this really well. He says this, There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, Thy will be done... And those to whom God says in the end, Thy will be done. All that are in hell choose it. Without that self choice, there could be no hell. Hell, I'm sorry, no soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek it, they'll find it. And those who knock, it'll be opened. Now, I want to show you the verse that C.S. Lewis is actually referencing in that last statement. Those who knock, it is open. He's referencing Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, when Jesus says this. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. Friends, don't miss, don't miss, don't miss this next statement. God is not dying to send people to hell. God died so that you don't have to go there. God is not dying to send people to hell. He's not some like wrath, you know, pure wrathful just vengeant God up in the sky just ready to punish you for every single mistake. He's not dying to send people to hell. He died so that you don't have to go there. I want us to read a passage of scripture today that you're most certainly going to be familiar with, especially if you grew up in the church or grew up in Sunday school. You likely had to memorize this verse, and if you didn't grow up in the church, you probably saw it below Tim Tebow's eyes in a football game, okay? We're going to read John three sixteen together, and it goes like this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. But let's make it more personal this morning. Because this is so broad in the way that it's teaching us. And so here's what I'm going to do. I really hope you'll participate with me here. I'm going to say, for God so loved, and I'm going to point to you, and I want you to say your name out loud. For God so loved that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him will never have to worry about hell. Because they're never going to perish, but they will have eternal life. Can we go one layer deeper? I want you to think of somebody that you desperately hope will come to faith in Jesus one day. Somebody that hasn't accepted the saving grace of Jesus that does, yes, it saves us from hell, but it gives us so much more. It gives us a better life. It allows us to live life in what John says, to the, fu- <clears throat> to the fullness. And so what I want to do now is I want to read that verse again. That this time when I point to you, I want you to say the name of somebody out loud that you would hope would come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. I really hope that person's not beside you right now because that could get really weird. Let me read it one more time. For God so loved, yeah, that he gave his one and only Son. And whoever, whoever believes in him should not perish because God's going to give them eternal life. Let me finish that in verse 17. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. God is not dying to send anyone to hell, just the opposite. He, He died so you wouldn't have to go there. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Friends, God has done everything necessary to keep you and your loved ones from experiencing eternal separation from Him. And whether or not, there's like physical flames in hell. Like, guys, there, I get it. Well, there's so much more I could have digested with you this morning. There's so many more aspects of this. This is why we want to give you an opportunity to ask questions if you want to later. I'm going to give you an opinion, okay? Keep in mind, this is just my opinion. I don't think there are flames in hell. And the reason I don't think there are flames in hell is because this is one of those times where I believe Jesus and other authors are using a physical description to explain a physical reality. Because what does fire represent? It represents destruction. It destroys maybe things like love and hope and peace and anything else good in this world. Listen to me. In Matthew 25, we read that this punishment, it's not temporary. It is eternal. On a side note really quick, for those of you in here that lead neighboring groups, I actually want you to go a little bit deeper on this subject, and I want you to read together Matthew 25, 31 through 46. We'll send that to you later as well, but if you're a neighboring group leader in here, I want you to write down that passage, and I want you guys to digest that together. Let me close with this. Friends, God has no desire to send you to hell, but listen to me. If you choose to live a life without him, he'll honor that for eternity. He doesn't want anyone in heaven who doesn't want to be there. Hell is God's willful and chosen destination for those who willfully choose to go against him. Let me have a, just a real moment with you this morning. Part of me just kind of ate to the core when I was preparing this message. And it's not because I don't believe any of this is real. I don't struggle with the reality of an eternal hell. I struggle with the reality that I've got loved ones who haven't accepted the saving faith of Jesus. And that's the beauty of what God has done for us, friends. He's made it pretty easy for us to not only be saved from hell, but to, be, to live a new life. He calls, he calls us to a new life, life in the fullness. And so as I'm processing through my sermon this week, I was just thinking of people. And if I can be really honest with you, I haven't been as urgent in my own life in sharing Jesus with others as I need to be because I do believe this place exists. Now, there's another part of me that is thankful that I got to preach on this subject today. And it's mainly because of this last statement. I'm going to close with it. Friends, I don't think any Christ follower can appreciate their salvation until they know what they've been saved from. Can I say it one more time? I don't think any Christ follower can appreciate their salvation until they actually know what they've been saved from. If you will, bow your heads with me really quick. I'm going to... I'm going to pray for us. But during my prayer, uh, go ahead and bow your head, shut your eyes if you don't mind doing that for me. During this prayer, I'm going to give you an opportunity for anybody in here that has never accepted the saving faith of Jesus. I'm going to give you an opportunity just to raise your hand here in just a moment. And I don't need anybody looking around. But here's what I don't want to happen. We just learned this together. You don't lean into the Lord and in His direction out of fear, you don't lean into Jesus because. You're afraid of what He's going to do if you don't. You lean into Jesus because of His grace. You lean into Jesus because how much He loves you and the extent He was willing to go so that one day, when we all face what's called the judgment day, you will be seen as righteous in the eyes of God because the the Son will be inside of you. When Jesus comes to live inside of you, God looks down on you and He sees Jesus inside of you and He sees you as perfect. blows my mind. And so, Father, right now, I pray that anyone in this room that has never accepted your your grace, that has never grabbed onto saving faith in your Son, Jesus, God, that they would be ready to move in that direction today, not out of fear, but, God, out of appreciation and hope and, and love and everything that you teach us that comes from the fruit of your Spirit. And so if you're in here right now, everybody keep their head bowed. If you're ready to make that decision, will you just throw your arm up in the air? Can I see your hand? Okay, I see you. Father, I pray that you honor that decision. I pray that you honor their decision to make you the leader and the Lord of their life. And for the rest of us that maybe have already made that decision, God, would you reignite something inside of us out of appreciation because now we maybe have a clear understanding of what we've been saved from. So we're going to go into a moment, Father, where we want to spend just a thin space with you. We want to have a time where we seek out your presence in our lives and whatever it is that we may be dealing with in this moment. And so, Father, I pray that you meet us right here, right now. Everybody said, Amen.